Before I start the latest episode, I want to make a short personal plea to all my listeners in regards to the increase in hate crimes empowered by our president-elect. If you're in a large organization with a national platform, please don't remain neutral and hide behind a policy of offensive material doesn't promote inclusiveness. By banning users or deleting work that denounces the increased hate crimes, no matter how polarizing those designs or works are. When you stay neutral, ban users, or delete work that criticizes the president-elect and the hate crimes that have sharply risen since the election, you are normalizing those hateful actions. You are passively saying hate shouldn't be denounced if someone is offended. Now is not the time to stay neutral. What we are seeing is not normal, and it must be called out by everyone who professes to support equality and diversity. Now is not the time to do work that tiptoes around avoiding offensive material. Now is the time to do very difficult work. Work from helping those disenfranchised by the abolishment of the Voters' Rights Act to creating online services helping call out hate crimes. If that work ends up being visually offensive to some, tough. Don't normalize hate by being passive in your actions. Now is not to t um, the time to stand idly by. With that said, welcome to episode 36 of DesignEDU today, the podcast series discussing topics concerning the state of interactive design education and institutions of higher learning. I am your host, Gary Rosance, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. In this episode, we will be discussing non-traditional paths to becoming a graphic designer and the differences between brand design and user experience design. We will also go in-depth about creating a user journey and what lengths are truly necessary for designers to properly research the end user of their products. We finish up the episode with a call to designers to get involved in politics beyond posters and safety pins. Today's guest is Robin Canner, a designer living in Seattle, making responsible design decisions by diving deep to solve the right problem. Currently, Robin is a UX designer at Amazon uh, within community where she primarily works on system design with a strong focus in mobile. Robin also co-founded and designed My Trans Health, which is a resource dedicated to helping trans people find access to quality health care and was invited to the 2016 White House LGBT Tech Summit. Robin started her career in the music industry designing albums and has worked as a brand designer for Staples and New Balance. Welcome, Robin. Hey. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to do this. Yeah, uh, thanks for having guys. me. Yeah, you're welcome. Oh, and I do want to do, give a quick shout out to Chief Advertising Agency who are letting me use their conference room because I'm doing this in person with Robin up in uh, D.C. Okay, so before I get into specific questions about UX and design, I'd like to ask you about your professional background. Um, specifically, how did you first get into graphic design without having any university training? Sure. So I grew up in rural Maine, like in this little town called Fairfield. And um, by sort of happenstance, I graduated high school early, like 
back in like December 2004. Um, basically, I had been kicked out of a vocational program and my credits aligned in a way that I had um, the ability to leave early. So I kind of had like eight months to hang out and like take one community college course. And I was like working as like a fast food person, like closing the restaurant down. Um, and I would basically go home and kind of like freak out about gender. Um, so it would be like, you know, 1am and I would just like think about gender identity up until like 5am and I couldn't sleep. So after like a month of doing that, I just started to self teach myself what design was. Um, so I was working mostly with musicians and like, just kind of like figuring out how software works. But that period was just me like flirting with Adobe and like figuring out how to make things work. Wow. That's. That's kind of interesting because my own story, how I got into design was I was working at a diskette duplication company. We were duplicating diskettes. Yeah, yeah, They needed somebody to take other people's artwork and get it into Adobe right. so they could print the labels. Right. And, and that is what literally got me, that kind of got me started. Yeah. It, and messing around with HTML and CSS. Yeah, and just figuring like how things like happen. Um, there was this band in Maine, um, they're called Six Gig. And one of the people, like, there was this guy who was singing, his name was Walter, and he'd done all this, like, really cool design work. And I was just, like, looking at it, like, as a, you know, 17-year-old in Maine, just, like, really into, like, the aesthetics of how things looked. And I kind of, like, just wanted to learn how to do that. So I would, I would literally just, like, look at his work and then, like, look at other things and try to, like, make things, like, in the middle of the night. Um, and it, it got me to a point ultimately where eventually I landed at a like rural art school called the University of Maine at Farmington. Um, and I, I was able to like kind of play with like work a little bit more in that sense. Um, the complicated thing being I was like definitely a designer in an art program. So I found myself like really trying to like pull like all these like installations and projections and audio sound bits of like talking about gender and like this way of like treating it like design. So like a lot of my work, even though I was trying to pass it off as art, looked like corporate design. Um, and I, I had a professor um, by the name of Don Nye who like let me do that. And it was pretty helpful for me. You know, uh, this wasn't a scheduled question, but can you explain what, why you think it looked, what you were, why do you feel that what you were doing then was more design than art? Like what, what did you see as the difference? Sure. So it was it was like a really rural program. There were six people in the class. Um, and everybody had like these really like deep understandings of like why they were making the work they were making. Um, and a lot of the stuff that they were doing was about asking people questions. Mm -hmm. um, whereas a lot of the stuff that I was doing was about telling people what to think. Okay. So I kind of gave it away really quickly always. Um, and the pullback was always like, well, you have to like let people get there. And I'd be like, I don't want to let people think I want to guide them through the experience. Okay. Um, so that was like the break as like a design person in art school. Okay. No, that's a, that's a good differentiation. I don't even know if that's a word, uh, but it, that's a good, how to distinguish them. Okay. So looking over your experience on LinkedIn, it seems that each of your uh, positions prepared you for the next position. Not it's, it's almost like an apprentice uh, as a like a, a scheduled apprenticeship and not just natural personal growth and skills. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, it wasn't intended at the time. Um, okay. So my youth was really messy. Um, I left school and I 
landed in um, a theater program mm -hmm. and I was basically like the person who was like building marketing stuff for like these like shows in Portland, Maine. Um, and then at night I would like go and work with musicians. Um, but that job ranged from like, you know, building like marketing pieces for like specific like theater shows to also like making sure like the snow worked in a Christmas carol. It was very much like an internship. Um, and then after that, I like, there was this person who moved into Maine and he wanted to like start like this music magazine. So I went over with him and like started to like design this print magazine and like he was a very wealthy startup type person. So I was able to like kind of like, just break things and see what happens mm -hmm. with grids. Um, at that point, I didn't really know like what a what a grid was in design, so I had to like teach myself that. Um, and that was basically like just going into bookstores and being like, oh, these things are like laid out in a specific way, and figuring out like how like this magazine would look like. So I did that for a couple years, um, and then I would like I spent like a month in an advertising agency in Maine, um, but then when I transitioned, they told me they didn't want me to work there anymore. So I, uh, I worked at a nonprofit for a little bit and then I, I left Maine and became like a designer at Staples and a designer at New Balance. Um, and then ultimately like bailed out West to, to make a startup and land in tech. Um, but it wasn't really intended like how that happened. It just kind of did. Um, I'm very thankful it did, but yeah, it was, it was very strange. Well, and it's also like a, not that you already know this, but that's a shame that like they already got to know you and they already valued you. But once you said you told them that you were going to go to the transition, that's when they like threw you out the door. That's just. Yeah. So like basically <laughs> like I had like done a, like a freelance contract for them. Um, and at the point in which like, like I wrapped up my contract and I was done and we were on good terms. And then they had reached back out to me um, about like another full-time role after they had like gotten another client. And so I was like going through this interview process with mm -hmm. them and like basically like after this like eight hour interview like this like vp of design over there sat me down and was just like the last question of the interview she was like um can you tell me why you're the man for the job i looked at her and i was like uh you mean the person and she was like nope the man and i kind of looked back at her and i was like i'm not getting this job am i and she was like no you're not um and that's why i left uh, maine yeah that was a good choice um but oh, but also like so your job at like Staples, um, it seems like you're the what you did and the scope that you did was perfect training for what you did at New Balance. In a lot of ways, yeah, yeah. So when I was at Staples, um, I was mostly like building brands, and I yeah. kind of focused mostly on style at Staples. Mm -hmm. um, so I was doing like a lot of photo shoots for them and like art directing how this would look, and also like building a brand identity for how like in-store signage could look. I never touched anything on the web though. And then um, basically after like a nine month contract, um, I had like the opportunity to roll full time there or like go to a different contract. Um, and I, have, I was driving this car that like couldn't even barely make it to Framingham, Massachusetts from Boston. <laughs> and uh, to, the, to the like end of like that last, that contract, my, my friend Christine was like picking me up, like, to, like, go into work and commute. So I basically, like, had no way to even get to Staples, and I didn't want to buy a car. So um, that was ultimately the reason why I went to New Balance. So, like, New Balance was, like, having a contract available, too, and it was, like, similar in that, like, I built pop-up shops for New Balance mostly. Mm -hmm. And, like, I kind of already knew how to build, like, in-store fixtures for my work at Staples. And yeah. 
there was also like a little bit of like confidently lying to that I knew what I was doing when I yeah. started the interview there. And um, I just like, I met with two really good designers who like were working there and they all kind of like understood where I was coming from and the work I was doing. So they let me build pop-up shops for them. And, you know, it was like, it was similar to Staples, whereas like when I was contracting, I was really intentful on like whatever that first project I was doing to make sure like I just knocked it out of the park. So I had built trust with them. Um, so I got to New Balance and like the first thing I built was um, the like Brooklyn Half Marathon pop-up shop for like 2015. And I like just worked my butt off really quick on it and like had built trust with them so that mm -hmm. For the rest of the contract, they kind of like understood where I was coming from and also like understood that I would ship things for them and like kind of get out of their way too. Um, with this is an aside, I'm curious how much. So you said you were like building the sets and building the pop ups and things like that. Sure. So how much did your theater background, how much has that helped you? In strange ways. Um, yeah. My theater background helped me talk to people. Um, okay. That was like the. A really core thing um i was really socially awkward when i was younger and i didn't really know what i was doing in theater everybody's kind of an extrovert or at least like a fake extrovert yeah <laughs> so like i was able to learn from them how to talk to people um it, so within that it helped me like do that work at new balance and staples um the actual physical building sets though mm -hmm. i kind of just had an understanding of space like mm -hmm. i had done um a sculpture class when i was like at uma in farmington i did like a 3d design course so I kind of understood how things worked and how they looked. Um, and then like once I saw like what, what a spec sheet looked like, it kind of like made sense of how you build things. Cause like when you see like these huge installations in stores or whatever, it kind of can look like daunting. But when you pull back and see a spec sheet, it's just like A3, 11 by 17, A2 is like six by two. And you like build a mock on it and it's actually not scary at all. Yeah. So like that part helped me just like get over like my freak out of making any of those pop-up shops for them. Yeah. Um, and I was able to like build like mini comps so I could see how things would like work in physical spaces. So do you think the, the theater work has helped you and your UX work in regards to like, you know, that storytelling or that, that idea for sure. of walking somebody through? Can you give examples of how or? Yeah. Well, the, the theater work was really interesting. Um, they were very much professionals who were, very great at theater and I very much was like a designer who like was building um, comps for them for like how their like websites would work but like that idea of storytelling was like kind of new to me in a lot of ways um, but there was one show called the 39 steps um, which is like this like mystery kind of thing and I did the lighting for it um, and when you're like a lighting designer at like an internship, you don't actually do any of the design. Like this is like an art director that designs all the lights and you basically end up running a board. Mm -hmm. um, so my job was to like run lights for the 39 steps and I did it like, I don't know, 50 times or something like that. And that whole process is like a stage manager being like, lights one, go, lights two, go. And it's just me hitting the go button over and over and over again. Um, so like within that process, I was kind of able to focus on one story over a month, like 50 different times and like hearing how like these characters like built up suspense and let go of suspense and um, figured out how to really control an audience in a room. And I think when you're designing UX, there's, there's this idea of like an end to end experience. Mm -hmm. um, so within that, like I kind of had a better understanding of what that was um, in the sense that like, there's an end-to-end -end experience for the people who are doing the show. Like, they, they're they doing the show, that's, like, their whole experience, and they leave the show. But for, like, an audience member, that end-to-end -end experience is, like, 
getting to the theater, walking up the steps, getting a drink, then sitting down to their seat, watching the show, having an intermission, Mm -hmm. going back to their seats, leaving, getting back to their car. Like that's the full end to end experience for the audience. Um, And then like from a UX standpoint, I think about how the fact that like the majority of work that I do is like about screens. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you're thinking about like an end to end, usually anything like within like an app or something involves like having to deal with people at one of those interactions. So I think that kind of just taught me how to like make it like a real end to end experience, like in person, then on the screen and kind of like, I don't want to use the word control, but like manipulate that experience to be really positive for the person who needs to do what they need to. (laughs) Yeah, design it. I I love the word manipulation. Um, I I do it a lot. Um, I think like people have like negative thoughts about the word manipulate, but I, I, that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I guess every, everything's in language. Mm. Uh, Totally. Yeah. And and the reason I was going on that whole theater line is, I don't know if you're familiar with Stanley Hainsworth. Uh, He runs Tether. It's up in Seattle, but he was former global creative director of Starbucks, Lego, Nike, and his background is in theater. Yeah. Interesting. So if you go into one of those stores, you, you see the end to end, like you said, like total experience. And there's, there's obviously some kind of more than just a, happenstance or just like sure. a coincidental connection there. there there's like something really valuable about sure. the way theater crafts you know like suspends disbelief so you really feel you're there that is very very applicable to yeah creating customer journeys totally and i saw it a lot in the music industry like mm-hmm. for as much as i was doing that internship like there was like a two-year period where like I was like on tour with bands or like building like album identities. Um, there was all these parts within music that involved like me really understanding like what an end to end was. Um, and I would definitely was able to take like a lot of those experiences into like a customer journey for any, anything that I design. Um, so before I ask you about just like your path that you, you know, that led you to Amazon, I want to ask you just to follow up on. So we've been talking about this end to end, this user journey and all that kind of stuff. So, in print heavy programs, sure. you know, you, if you design a business card, right. there's not a lot of, not a lot of depth to that journey. Totally. Um, and even in, even in a book, I mean, there, you know, you've, you've got the pacing between the pages. Sure. But so what are some things that we should be doing as educators bringing back to like help our students understand that this, this larger, you know, it's not just a website, it's not just visual, it's like this path, this journey, this experience what are some things uh so like for me um a big thing for me when i was a student and professors were asking me to do work um i couldn't see the real cause and effect and that was like a really complicated thing for me Uh, i felt like i was building things a lot of the times for a grade as opposed to like actually feeling the responsibility of something going wrong or something going well um and the more pressure that was on me the better i did with it so um, there was a lot of the times where my professors were like assigning me projects and I would like go and do them and kind of present them to the class. But like the only person that I was screwing if I got wrong was just me. I didn't have any responsibility of other people. Um, when I started to do albums, like I had like bands who were like scrounging together like a few hundred dollars to make a record. And all of a sudden I had like a deep sense of responsibility for like what it meant to like make sure something was good. And I felt that pressure. Um, so I think like for professors, like I think there's a lot of ideas about the fact that like you can like kind of help students feel that pressure of having to ship thing and like knowing that somebody else had to like build a budget just for you in the room. So like you 
can put a lot of responsibility on like the student to, to ship good work for them. That's fascinating because you're right. That's, um, we don't, they don't, their responsibility is their grade and it's, sure. it's an intrinsic, I mean, it's, it's not a, and it's an extrinsic motivator, totally. which isn't really going to work. And, right. and eh, that's a, that's really interesting that the whole idea of like ownership over something because they yeah. just don't. No, I mean, there is none. And, um, like as far as grades go, like I just, I didn't care. Like I could have gotten an F on thing. I got a lot of Fs in school and I, I just didn't care. Um, and, but like I would leave there and I would go do a record for like a, like a group of like five people who just like had to work like 10, like eight hour shifts, like doing something. And like, then they would like scrounge together, like a few hundred dollars within like fives and tens. And like, I knew that pressure. So like it, it shifted the value for me drastically. Um, so, and I, I kind of thrived on that pressure too. Um, so yeah, that, that pressure is like, I think a lot of the times how designers like end up like getting to a place where they know that they need to ship a really good project for them. So first, can yeah. you talk a little bit about what led you to become a UX designer at Amazon? How'd you make that leap from New Balance? Yeah. So, um, essentially when, when I was in Boston, I was doing like brand work for Staple and New Staples and New Balance. And um, the work was good, but I couldn't really see the future in it. Um, I kind of like, I was afraid of looking at like the business side of how businesses were shifting out of print and into web. Um, and I didn't really know how to design a screen at all. Um, I had done some websites in Squarespace, but it was never like something that I owned myself. Um, so we had like this idea for like My Trans Health, which was ultimately the bridge for me to get in from print to web. And like that entire experience was like really just like me alone in a bedroom in like Boston or Portland, Oregon, and just like designing screens and sending them to my friends and like having them respond back to feedback with it. And then going to interviews with like companies who shipped like web design and have them be like, talk me through your web design. And I could barely do it. Um, and there was a process of like me just bombing interviews that helped me learn how to talk about web design in a lot of ways, um, which is like a really horrible place to like get a <laughs> solid understanding of what your designs are working or not. But like I got a lot of feedback from bombing interviews. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? You students need them. Mm. <laughs> they, they need them. I tell them all the time, just go just hit up, pick a firm. Don't ask them for anything. Don't try sure. to beg for a job. Just ask them to do a mock interview with you. And yeah. They never do it. Yeah, well, I think, like, there's, it goes back, like, I'm really just a huge, um, this sounds dramatic, but I'm a really huge proponent of getting punched in the face. Yeah. Like, you, like, I learned a lot from just, like, getting beat down by people. Um, and there was a process, definitely, when I interviewed, where, like, the range from, like, a small company and, like, what they were concerned about to a large tech company was different. And when I was showing them my work, like, they responded differently because they were thinking about their needs, too. Um. And the more experience I had doing it, the better I was to equip to just talk about like how I build websites. So like my journey into UX was like recognizing that trans people had a problem that I maybe could help solve and just like going into rooms and being like, this is what I'm, this is where I'm thinking about and like where I'm at. And then them being like, you're right for this job or you're not right for this job, but here's some like minor pieces of feedback that you should consider regardless. And then just me doing that cycle over and over and over again until I kind of landed to where I was. All right. So you already started talking about Mammy Trans Health. So we'll jump into that into a minute. I'll, I'll kind of like dance around some of these questions. Sure. But the one I do want to address before we get into Trans Health because is what, and you can lead into it by talking about Trans Health if it, sure. if it helps, is 
So at Staples and at New Balance, you were a brand graphic designer. Mm-hmm. That's what you did. And you said you didn't do really much web there. Yeah. Uh, and so at Amazon, you're a UX designer. Mm-hmm. So as a discipline, how are these two professions different? Sure. Um, so they're similar in that you have to ship design and you have to yeah. sell design. And I think that's a really core piece in design is be able to present like whatever it is. Um, and that bridge helped me talk about UX and print. But how they differ, um, I look at data a lot more than I ever did when I was like a print or brand designer. Um, like I was able to go and like look at like how a pop-up shop performed the year before I New Balance and then like flip it over to the next year to know like if they made more money through like this pop-up shop that I did or they lost money. But um, that was like all I had for data. I didn't really like, I wasn't in like the physical space with them. Like you just shipped it and like it would be happening in New York or Chicago and I would just be in Boston. Um, so I didn't like understand like, I didn't really understand like how a user was like experiencing something within the physical space. Um, whereas when I started to like dive deep into UX, like I had a totally different idea of what success metrics are and I knew like that I needed to set them in the beginning versus like just letting an experience happening in a physical space and letting them happen um so the major difference for me was just like this idea of like when you're like doing brands like you're kind of doing one-offs like you're making pictures sometimes you do design systems but there's a lot of pictures um versus UX which is like this entire experience of like knowing that a person needs to accomplish a task and and that's like a little bit different from brand to, to UX so to follow up then, okay, so with the data points, sure. what kind of data points, I mean, I, I'm asking it from this perspective. So when I assign, an, a, I give students an assignment, it's like, okay, design a website. But, you know, I struggle with what kind of content to give, them. like what's the content of it? I, I sure. really struggle with that because if I just hand them the content and hand them the, the, the project, they're not learning, like you said, like real life. They're just like, they're learning how to decorate. Totally. Because I've already kind of set it up. They're not going through the sure. learning process. So I'm asking it from that. Like, so what are data points and how do right. they influence the different things sure. that you've designed? So um, my trans health is a really good example of like a thing that I needed to figure out like a data point for. Um, so we had to decide what cities that we were going to launch in. And we knew like we wanted to hit each quadrant of the United States, but we didn't know whether like we were going to do Minneapolis or Chicago or New York or uh, Boston. And like, I had to look at like where the need was heavy. Um, and that involved like really like diving deep with organizations who were doing like that kind of work and figuring out where the need was the most. Um, for example, like, my trans health is in Chicago and not Minneapolis. And the reason for that is that Chicago has a trans health conference already built into place. And they're kind of like have a lot more people doing that work. Um, Minneapolis already does have like a trans health conference too, but from a population standpoint, Chicago is a lot bigger. So they had like more trans people there. And that's why my trans health chose Chicago over Minneapolis um, was just like a, a population wise of how many people that like you could help in total. Um, which is like a, a really hard um, call to make when you have to figure out how many cities you're going to be in for a resource that's incredibly valuable. Um, but I definitely had to like kind of like, you know, disagree and commit and say like, I know, know people in Minneapolis need this help, but like I'm going to launch in Chicago first because there's um, more groundwork already done for us to get there. Um, 
and then like data is affecting the way that I look at like a, what a V2 for my trans health looks like. Um, like we have like this zip code um, feature where people can enter in where they are and I can figure out like where my trans health needs to be next. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're launching in Minneapolis. Well, we launched in Minneapolis, uh, not Minneapolis, but we launched in Chicago, San Francisco, New York, Miami, um, and Dallas, I think in Seattle. Right. And, um, within like the data point of like where my trans health is at right now um we have the six cities where we are now but we're wondering where we go next um and i know for a fact what people are entering as like a zip code for people who need help um north carolina is in fact the state that's going to my trans health the most asking for help so i know that's where like we need to be in next um in a similar not similar but like in a really interesting way um if you look at like all the people who are like trying to figure out where they can get help for trans healthcare. There's the United States, which is the number one country, but Russia is actually the number two country right now. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. By like a margin too. Um, so that's, that tells you a lot about like their politics at the moment and why people mm-hmm. are like going to the site to need help too. So, you know what? I just, I should have said this for the user, um, um, <laughs> for the, for the users, for the audience, yeah. Um, could you just uh, kind of give us a brief overview of My Trans Health so they can put it in context when they're sure. talking about it? Totally. So My Trans Health is a site that I build, um, and essentially it's helping trans people get access to quality health care. Um, we found that trans people were disproportionately um, targeted as like a wall to not get the access that they need. Um, so like, for instance, people would be like, going into a therapist saying that I needed a letter that says I need hormones and um, they would hear from that therapist things like, I don't think you're ready to transition or you might not be like um, in a great place like physically to transition or like you might be in a bad place locationally to transition. And there was all these walls that were being created for trans mm-hmm. people to get access to the things that they need. Um, so my trans health ended up calling around 480 doctors across six cities and talking to them about how they talk to trans people. Um, and basically we built a, a database of all these doctors that like won't be gatekeepers for trans people. So you're able to like just go find a doctor, call them, and then when like, you show up, they'll just give you whatever you need. And there's like less of a wall in between that like social understanding of what trans identities are. So it, it's probably gonna be hard for you to, to do this, but separating yourself out. Sure. Because you, you know, this is also obviously some personally important to sure. you, but let's say you were to outsource this to a designer mm-hmm. and to a firm to, to build this site. Sure. Would they have, would that firm had the same responsibility as you did? I mean, how would they handle like sure. the, the, like the doctors? I mean, like, so what would have been like the real responsibility totally. uh, if you had to like do build the design and the functionality of this? for a, an actual designer a right. firm or whatever you want to call it. Sure. So this is like my favorite question to answer because yeah. I'm a huge believer that like any team building any product needs to be diverse enough in which they can see other viewpoints. Um, my trans health works because trans people designed it and we were able to see things that people who aren't trans can't see. Um, the people who vetted all these doctors and practitioners were trans people who knew what it felt like to like be in a room where somebody was weird. Um, so, the, I mean, the first thing that any designer needs to do is, like, research for a product, right? So, if somebody who wasn't trans and they wanted to build this, um, A, I don't think that they would have been able to see all the things that, like, we were able to see. But, B, if they were trying to, 
they would want to like talk to a lot of different trans people about like the things that they need. Um, trans lives are intersectional. So like not only like is there like this idea of like passing privilege for trans people, but there's also class that comes into play. There's race. There's all these different elements that like makes a person and like it can like set the constraints for how that person gets access to things and how they don't. Um, so it would really be on the, the design team to be able to like, talk to like more than one trans person about how like they're having difficulties, like talk to a multitude. Um, for me personally, um, because I knew that I was coming in with a lot of baggage on designing this product um, and I didn't want to like project that baggage on a lot of people, I did a couple different things that helped me like separate like what I call the subjective to objective. Um, the first thing I did is after my trans health like kind of got like a lot of press and we didn't really have a product yet and I was kind of freaking out about it. Um, I started to volunteer for a suicide hotline um, called um, Trans Lifeline. And I was basically just like, you know, working like a day shift at New Balance, then going home and like taking these calls from people across the country um, and world really that were having difficult times like within their lives. Um, and I mean, they were all super, um, kind of anonymous calls, but like there was, a, there was a lot of same root issues. Like I don't know where to go or I asked this one person, but they didn't like help me and I'm too tired to do it again. Or like, you know, I <laughs> went to like this person and they like showed that like my joint pain was as a result of hormone replacement therapy, which it never would be. Um, they were just having joint pain. <laughs> so like there was like this entire like misunderstanding of like what medicine did to trans bodies um, to doctors who just like weren't up on their research when it came to it. So I kind of knew like the, the holistic problem from that landscape. Um, and then the other thing that we did is like to launch our Kickstarter that helped fund my trans health, yes. we did a uh, hashtag called trans health fail. And I mean, we had like 10,000 people tweeting out like their trans health fails of like the experience were 10,000 total tweets from people who were talking about like their difficulties getting access to healthcare um, to the point where like somebody tweeted this thing about like how they were like on a, they were in ER on a suicide hot, like they're on a um, like suicide like watch for like, the trouble that they were having and like one of the guards like within the place called them like a tranny which is really messed up um so there were all these people like talking about the the major issues that they were having and i was able to kind of like just dive through that twitter hashtag and then also take everything that i knew from doing that suicide hotline and like kind of separate my own personal experience with everybody else who was talking about their stuff and that that helped me design like a lot of the way it works right now yeah so well i you're in your cases like you are embedding yourself um in the suicide hotline and things like that and, like that's an extreme because you have to be you have to know what you're doing in that kind yeah, of situation. yeah no i i had to go through training to yeah. do that like i worked with like a lot of people to figure out how to talk to different people and figure out like how to really understand like how to validate like a lot of the experiences that were people were having a tough time with um there was i mean there's a whole training that i had to that i went through but do people who so do designers where you know should they embed themselves in some in a project like that on that kind of well not that kind of like not on a level where it's like life threatening but should is part of the ux process that you know i know i'm not teaching a classroom like embedding yourself down to that level of like you know to gain empathy to know, like know what you're really doing sure i think designers have a responsibility to the work that they're putting into this world so if you're making a thing and like you know it has a cause and effect on people you really need to understand what that cause and effect is um 
it goes back to the end-to-end experience. Mm-hmm. So with my trans health specifically, I know what it's like to to be at like the the wits of your end and basically like freak out and like be in a position where it like transitioning is a life or death thing. So like that is the end-to-end experience to me. Like with my trans health, it's like I'm at this point where like I'm calling it a day and I'm going to do this one last thing before I can get access to healthcare. Um, so like if that's my entry point, if that's like how I onboard something, it totally shifts how I'm gonna design something. Um, so designers like need to have empathy like on that regard, I think so. Um, if you're building an app that's like talking about weather, no, <laughs> probably not, unless you're like figuring out like where hurricanes are. Um, but if you're just like talking about like a sunny day or like you're building an app that like helps delivery, no, I don't think people need to be like volunteering for suicide hotlines. But if you're doing things that like somebody's main point into your site could be at that point in their life, yeah, I think you should have understanding. Okay. Um, so another thing that I wanted to just talk about in is the, the Kickstarter um, that you did for My Trans Health. Um, I'm curious, just like, I mean, like the design, you had like this, as it relates to design, like what kind of things did you do for the Kickstarter from like designing logos to, you know, the, I mean, I didn't look, I couldn't find, no, I didn't look, I didn't look, sorry, I'm gonna correct myself. Like, did you give away, like, did you design giveaways and stuff like, like what did sure. you do? So, um, it's a really good question because my trans health was messy. Um, for as like good as I feel about it right now, I know the process of making that product was difficult. Um, I know that I mostly hated making it while I was making it too. Um, but from like that Kickstarter point, basically like Cade had a Google like doc of like what this site could potentially look like. Mm -hmm. And we got to this place where we were like, we need funding to make this work at all. And, um, I was living in Boston and I like hopped on a bus to NYC and I met with, um, Annika, Amelia, and Kate, and we just sat down and like trying to figure out like what this site could look like and what we needed to do. Uh, and the first thing that we kind of came up with was like, okay, well, we need to give this thing a name, and then we also need to like figure out like what the branding looks like and how we get people to talk about it. Um, so my trans health is named my trans health because uh, initially, like, we were looking at like. Uh, how to make it like a, a, a positive experience um, and be like let people who weren't trans know that it's not about them um, so the reason why like it was initially going to be called trans health in general but a that was already incorporated and b like that doesn't let cis people like it doesn't let trans people know that it's about them and i wanted like trans people to know like i don't care what people who aren't trans think about this site i only care about you so that was like including the word my into it um, and then the actual logo itself, it's like this H with a plus sign on it. Um, and everything's like set in like this like healthcare green as opposed to like anything in like pink and blue, which traditionally like a lot of trans health sites are, or anything trans related are. Really? Yeah. So like the trans flag <laughs> is like this like light pink and a light blue. It's actually the Pantone colors of the year, which is hilarious on a whole other level. <laughs> Um, but there's like a lot of things for trans people are set in like this like pink to assign like female and like this blue to assign male and I just think that's complicated on a binary stance so like I just wanted to avoid that colored scheme entirely Um, and I also wanted like it to feel like this clean professional like website that like had accountability for it so I built Mm -hmm. it with like the idea of like this like healthcare site uh, in mind um, which is why it's green and it's not pink and blue Um, 
And so, like, the, yeah, the icon's just, like, a plus with, like, uh, an H attached to it. And, like, that icon was a thing that um, I probably did, like, 20 different versions of, like, what that variation would look like. And I was tossing it back to, like, I have this friend Alexander Bond, who was uh, at Pinterest at the time. And okay. I had this friend Richie Stewart, who... Um, runs a shop called Commoner. I was showing it to my art directors at Staples at the time. Mm-hmm. Like anyone who would look at it, I'd be like, yeah. what do you think of this mark? Um, I had Jay Finelli from Cotton Beer look at it. I had like everybody like take a like look at like what this thing could be like. And um, I finally got enough feedback to like how like I could scale this thing out into like a small little icon on a mobile app or like how it could look on a very large thing and was able to like get a mark down. Um, so once we had like the mark and the MyTransHall set out, uh, we knew that we wanted to like create a conversation around it before we started with like this Kickstarter. So again, I hopped down on a bus to New York and um, we uh, met with this woman, Becca Roth, who had already um, filmed some stuff that was doing like really well on the internet, like relating to queer people. And she helped us out. And like, uh, I like showed up to Cade's apartment in Bushwick and we did like this um, video of me talking about my experience getting healthcare. Mm-hmm. And it's like this two minute video of me talking about like my difficulties and I'm like looking in the screen and it's very vulnerable. Um, And for as much as I was talking about a real life experience that like I went through, I had also processed that real life experience on my own and was very much designing that moment. Um, And so we did like my like two minute video and we shot like a few other people for the Kickstarter video and we just sent it out to press. Like I sent out a couple of tweets and like we had a couple of people who like we're working at like Business Insider and TechCrunch and we're like, here's this thing that we're doing. Let me know if you want to cover it. Um, and they started to pick it up and Good picked it up and like BuzzFeed picked it up and uh, essentially got to this point where like enough people were talking about it that we decided to like launch this Kickstarter. And we had like the branding materials built as far as like, you know, what the design system was going to look like. And I knew it was going to be like very healthcare centric with like quotes from like real trans people, um, like marking up with like this like H icon that I had. Uh, and we just, we launched the Kickstarter with like the video of me and the uh, like couple of videos of other um, trans people. And it just surprisingly did really well on the internet. Um, yeah. And yeah, I ended up taking calls from press like while on my lunch break at New Balance with people who had no idea what I was building at the time. And uh, it was it was a really weird time. Yeah, yeah. And I really like the, the the site design. In that, when you, when I went and I went and I looked at it and I checked mm-hmm. it out, I felt like I was, I don't know, you you normalized something that is normal, but you yeah. you didn't. I don't want to say no because it is normal. It's not like you normalized it. Totally. You made it approachable. It's like this yeah. is a matter of fact. This is just something that needs to be done. Totally. Where instead of like you, I'm just kind of actually kind of shocked that the colors are blue and right because really, that's so. Totally. I just. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <laughs> the reason why it's approachable, the reason why it's delightful is I know where you're coming in from. Like if you're hitting that site, I know where you're at mentally at the moment. Um, and I don't want you to be bummed anymore. Like I just don't want trans people to be bummed. Like that's why like the illustrations of the people who um, Kirk Wallace did. He's a fantra- fantastic illustrator. Um, and I did all like the iconography and like all the colors are very bright and all the copy is very bright. And it's because I don't want you to be sad anymore. It's just like, I want you to like get the things that you need and like get out of the experience. Um, you know, when we launched like, like the marketing materials of it, I had, I created a GIF of somebody going through that experience. It's a 15 second long GIF. And like in 15 seconds, it shows how like somebody who's on like the verge of freaking out finds a doctor, like in 15 seconds, it's a very short amount of time. 
Um, so like the entire idea was to like not bog you down, make onboarding very easy for people, um, and just not get in your way. So yeah. it was just, it was really about creating a delightful experience. Yeah. And it, and it really does come across. Um, so one thing that you just said that I didn't even, well, it's not that I didn't think about it. I think design educators should think about more sure. is you said the mark and you were getting advice from the mark and everybody. You also mentioned that the mark has to work as a little icon on a little yeah. social media, but it also has to work across all these different things. Totally. Um, can you just talk about that little, pro maybe that process a little bit more, like what should I be doing in the classroom to like make, make students really like think truly and deeply about their marks? Yeah, I mean, it's about design systems and it's about understanding where that system could possibly be. Um, you know, my tranself was an interesting spot because I didn't know where that mark was going. Like I had like that little logo thing, but I didn't really know like if it was going to land an app or mobile web or on desktop or like on a large billboard. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to be, for it to be scalable. Um, Richie taught me the quarter test, uh, which was, an, I think it's the quarter or the nickel test, which is basically you take a nickel and you print out your design at the size of a nickel. And if it's readable at that, you're probably in a good place for your mark. Um, and then like from there, like as a, like an accessibility of its readability at a mm -hmm. small scale, then I had to like consider like, will it work on a billboard? And like, I knew my trans health would never like be on a billboard, but I also like wanted to know like what that would look like. So I like mocked it up in a like little mobile app and as nickel, then I put it on a billboard in New York City. And I just figured out like, does this work? I, I never showed people that publicly, yet, yeah. but it was just me understanding from like a systematic standpoint whether this design would work fluidly across a lot of different things. Um, and, and that was just totally the process of like figuring out what scale was and figuring out where it could possibly be and just testing it and seeing what happens. Yeah. So my understanding of the term design systems is boils down to this is in, in web design, you do not know what the, it could grow. Sure. You need to give whatever it is you make, whether it's an, a web app, whether it's a mobile app, um, it, it doesn't matter. You need to give it room to grow. And so the design system is kind of like building that. You're building like this future flexibility. So by designing your logo um, and taking into consideration, well, yeah, it's only going to be used on this website right. today. Right. <laughs> you have to then project into the future what are future Totally. uses of this right. so is that an accurate description of what a design system is i mean that's what i've always considered it okay. um the only thing that i would call out is like it can grow but it also could shrink okay. like so like it's this understanding of like i think a lot of vc people have this idea of what their startup's going to do mm -hmm. and they have like their designers building like these huge things yeah and then really like that could dwindle in a year right so yes. like figuring out what that system like does if it shrinks or it grows um and that like that's the fluidity for for me um but from a system standpoint like what a design system and a brand is different than what it is in an environment is different than it is in like an app or like a, a ux experience right like <laughs> when i was at staples like my design systems that i had to do was like working on like this logo for um like this or called Staples Brand Group, which is like the, the Staples made like versions of these things, um, and figuring out how like a little logo could work on packaging for a phone charger, which is about an inch big, versus like um, how something could look in like a very large like um, printout that people get in your like mailbox, um, which could be like a lot larger of a design thing. So I had to figure out how it was gonna work on a grid and those experiences and how like a grid could work on an inch versus how a grid could work on 17 inches. Um, and then when I got to New Balance, the system was like 
these environments for pop-up shops. So like if you walk into like a place and like, you know, a lot of the stuff that I was doing was kind of like gritty and textured for them. So like how those textures work from like place to place to place when like a person's walking through the experience um, and like figuring out like, you know, New Bounce was like a lot looser and how like the, the designs were like actually created visually. So like figuring out that like a, uh, a design system didn't mean exact uh, like an exact um, experience from one panel to the next panel it just meant that they, they felt the same so I didn't ma need to make sure like everything was on a grid in the exact same way but just like the aesthetics like it wasn't like complete parody but like you could walk through and know you were in the same experience versus like when I got to UX like figuring that out like it was like okay it's less about like an, a visual element and like your experience of like you know, where I'm going to go to next. Like, if you're training a person to go to an action street to do something, like, you need to make sure, like, across experiences, they're going to that same action sheet. So, like, you're, you're training them from, like, a system standpoint of how you use your, how you use your thing that you're making for them. Um, so, the idea of a system is kind of fluid in a lot of ways for me. Yeah, and that was my biggest kind of question and difficulty when I was trying to describe the difference between a system and a branding guide to right. my students. And right. Right. <laughs> yeah and I, I mean, struggled with that it's and it's like it's it's per case basis right mm -hmm. like um if you like if you're in corporate versus if you're in choose versus if you're doing a healthcare site like that totally shifts like what a system means and um there's a really good chance that somebody in the room already knows what that answer is um for me like figuring out what it was at staples meant that like when i got to new balance i got coffee with like five different people there and I was like what does the system mean to you like what's your feel um and then like when I started working on my trans health I was able to develop that myself um so it was it's, it's a per case basis that involves figuring out like what systems mean to like an individual org or company so one last question before I let you go because we I want to make sure you get out of here on time sure um is there something I could be doing with like an exercise or something with my students to like help drive home that idea of like design systems yeah um I think that's a really interesting question because what I would probably do is I would um, have them do a few different experiences. Like I would mm -hmm. have them mark up like a corporate experience versus a looser one versus like a UX one and figure out like if they could like have these three different projects, like if they pulled apart and like really like pushed back how closely each of those like systems aligned and where they differed. And like, could you make like this like a compare and contrast report based on like how these systems like work together or they don't work together? Um, and then also, like, I know this doesn't work for a lot of students, but for me, like, it was, like, this idea of pressure. Like, if you're able to talk to students about, like, what it means to a budget and, like, most people's not going to really care about your grade when you leave school. But, like, if you have a budget, someone's going to really care about that budget. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, figuring out, like, how students, like, work within that. It's, like, you know, a lot of orgs will say, I have 10 hours to do this. So handing that over to a designer and be like, you have 10 hours to complete this task as opposed to like, you have a week and like you maybe can be late a couple of days. And I understand that like, so like putting that pressure on that real life scenario and be able to like have the person flourish in it or maybe they don't flourish in it. And that's when they learn something else about how they design too. Yeah, that was one of the best things one of my very first professors did was they, like we'd come in and say, okay, you've got 45 minutes do this right and that's when i did some of my best work that was yeah. just like man you just you pick an idea and you just run with it you totally. don't sit there and like toss yeah. it around yeah um one of my uh favorite designers mike montero yeah. um had this uh designer at the time andy 
basically um, make a hundred banners in a day for mm -hmm. a project. And Andy's talked about it in a couple of different conference talks, but it's like this idea of like the day of the hundred banners. Like when like Mike walked in and was just like, I'm going to make a bet with you that you can't ship a hundred banners in a day. And Andy like had to like figure out how to design a hundred different banners for this thing in one day. Um, and it was like, it was that pressure that was real. Um, yeah. And I, I love that idea. Yeah. We yeah. need to do more of that. Yeah. So Robin, before I let you go, is there anything that you're working on personally or something that you want to promote or share? Sure. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's, what I'm working on personally versus like what every designer is working on right now. Um, any designer with sort of um, any responsibility to their lives or like the lives of other people <laughs> around them, um, which mm -hmm. is like design is political. Yes. Um, everything about design to me is so political and everything is design. Like I talk to people who like do policy work all the time and I think to myself like how much design they're actually doing. So like, it's less about like what I'm doing because I really don't know what I'm doing right now. Yeah. Like I know like we just had like a bad thing happen for the country. Yeah. And like there's a lot of people who are like trying to like build from the scratch of this idea of like what they can do within that work. Um, but I would really just challenge everybody to to understand like the political landscape of what this world is and how they can create a conversation around it. Um, I will be so bummed if the only thing that happens with this election results is that designers make posters and but they put them on dribble. Um, that's you. like the worst. Like, don't do that. Like, if you're like listening to this thing right now and you're thinking to yourself, like, "Oh, I'm gonna make a poster about the like political activism or whatever," don't. Um, or if you do make the poster, you're just not putting it on dribble, which is like a group of like mostly like cis white men designers to like pat each other on the back about their vectors. Um, and immigrants are like getting pushed out of their homes. Trans people are like being afraid that like they won't ever be able to like change their names legally. Yeah. Gay people are afraid to get electrocuted by the vice president. Um, a poster on dribble, you're not doing anything. So don't do that. Um, do anything else than that. That's what I got. All right. Well, you know, do you have advice? One pound piece of advice. Then I'll yeah. definitely let us go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you, I think people are, in general, this is a generalization, not in disregards to the, the current election results, but in general, I think designers are like, they get these ideas that I think were probably good, but they're just afraid to act on them. Sure. How do you, when I mean, you have any like advice for like students or totally. you got this, get this project, how do you, how do you just like get the urge to do it? Do it. Yeah. <laughs> you get, um, they got the idea and then yeah. how do you go through, follow through? Yeah, I mean, I think there's this idea of pressure. I mean, that's like been the core thing of my entire life is like I have this idea, like I use this analogy of like, say you have a piece of wood, right? And like, it's like kind of a flexible piece of wood, right? And you can like kind of bend it and like it will like kind of wobble, but like it will mostly stay intact. Um, for me, like I loved the idea of like snapping that piece of wood, like creating that electricity, that urge. Um, and when like that happens, you kind of like, feel it in yourself that you really need to ship something um, and like just kind of power through it. So I think like that, that designer who like has an idea, like they have this piece of wood, right? And it's a little bit wobbly, but they're really hesitant and afraid. And maybe they're like, maybe they don't like putting things on the internet or maybe like they're concerned about their personal brand quote unquote already. And like, they're afraid of putting things on, but like think of it from a different perspective. Like, <laughs> would you really talk to an immigrant who's about to get like shipped out like of the country and say like, well, I was really afraid of my personal brain. So I didn't want to make this thing that could have helped your life. Like, come on, like just snap the piece of wood and do something. Um, so I, I just think as much as designers do things on screens and as much as designers do things in print, like there's an entire different understanding of what design is, which is about helping people. Mm -hmm. um, so like I do, like at the end of the day, I wonder like, 
how many designers didn't talk more about this election before it happened because they were afraid like somebody within their audience didn't would respond negatively um and if you take a, just a look back from like where you are and your privilege that you have like how can you not afford to talk about it um so create that urgency within yourself and, and know that you're, you'll hopefully be doing good work because of it all right well well thank you so much for your time i, I really appreciate it yeah thank you yep so that's all we have time for today on episode 36 of Design EDU Today. I want to thank today's guest, Robin Canner, for being so generous with her time. I want to thank the audience for listening, and I want to thank the Design EDU Today hosting sponsor, DigitalOcean, and CDN sponsor, Fastly, for making the hosting and distribution of these podcasts possible. I also want to thank the AIGA and the AIGA Design Educators community for their generous support of my research that led to this podcast series. And I also want to give another shout out to um, Chief Advertising Agency located in Washington, D.C. for offering the use of their conference room for me and Robin to uh, record this interview. It's, it's greatly appreciated. Thank you. So if you like this podcast, consider leaving a review for it in the iTunes store and share it with your colleagues and friends. To discover more about the Design EDU Today podcast and read the session notes and transcripts, visit the show website at designedu.today. To keep up with new, episodes, new show releases, you can follow us on Twitter at designedu today, like the Facebook page, or subscribe to this podcast through the iTunes or Google Play Store. Finally, if you'd like to suggest topics for future episodes or give feedback to help improve the show, contact me through Twitter or the show's email address at hello at designedu.today. Once again, thank you for listening to Design EDU Today.